introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome into another episode. Today's episode is Tomorrow Never Dies, The Fall of Saigon. Uh, it really relates to what's going on in Kabul, the parallels, how the fall of Saigon kind of parallels what's going on with the uh, Afghan pullout right now. And uh, today's going to be a special guest, Matt Perkins. This is his third time on. Uh, he, This is really his episode. He wrote it. it uh, he's really great. So I'm not going to do too much of the traditional stuff. I'm going to let our interview kind of speak for itself. Um, but I just want to say this is this has been, as you, a lot of you guys know, I just started law school. And uh, it's been, it's <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's definitely a bear. Um, you know, the concepts, it's not rocket science or anything like that. But it's just a lot of work. You know, it's 20 hours of class instruction. And then outside is another 40 to 60 hours of work on top of that. So it's just been, I've just been stupid busy. Um, but a lot of you guys knew that. And a lot of guys um, had reached out. And actually three people have now written an episode for me. I mean, three people, and this is going to be one of them, Matt Perkins, and Alex Lamas, and then another guy regarding Bond, Marcus, wrote another episode. And uh, I, there is no way there's another community that I would, that you, you have something like this where a host would say, yeah, I'm going to be a little busy coming up, and somebody would be like, you know what, hey, we want to keep this going, let me write an episode for you. Three people have done that. That's amazing. That's that is just it boggles my mind. It blows my mind. It's just so humbling. It's so uh, that's why you know th- there's I just love this community so much. Uh, I I can't I can't imagine anyone any other community having that and have the talent that comes out of these guys, the talent of what you, these guys guys have written, um, so great. And I, I've seen Alex Lamas now is going to be on the um, the David Zariski's um, book episode about on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So I'm just. Uh, you know, I just love having people in and having them branch out and just really helping out people who want to be a part of the community and have so much talent. I just am so excited for everything going on. So I, I love that. I love this community so much. And so thank you guys so much for pouring out and the ongoing support. That being said, going forward, it's only going to be podcasts. I have um, this one that's coming out. Then I have Alex Lamas is going to come on. We're going to talk about is James Bond a psychopath? And we're going to kind of go through some cool things there. Uh, then I've got an episode with Bud West, the Day of the Dead, history of that. The Dia de la Muerte. And then um, I've got regarding Bond, Marcus is going to come on. So there's a lot of, or I'm going to do his episode. So there's a lot of stuff coming on. And again, thank you guys so much for all the support going forward. That being said, let's get into this episode again. And what we're seeing happening, and I, I, a lot of you guys catched out, and a lot of you guys loved what I did with the, um, the Taliban episodes that I did because I was just so impassioned about it. Just watching it just made my, just, just hurts to watch. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And uh, it's really been hard to watch. And now we're looking at our servicemen dying and uh, Afghans, you know, losing their lives too. It's all hard to watch. We always say, I keep always saying this, and it's why I love history so much, is that it keeps repeating itself. It just does. There's, humanity likes to think that we live in this time period that's so different than history or that what's happening now is so different than anything we've ever seen before, that we've never seen anything like this before. When in fact, if you look at history all throughout, I can find, an, and you tell me any instance and I'll find a historical time when it happened before that. Humanity has kind of a pattern, just like we kind of search for patterns. Humanity acts in patterns. We like to think that we're individual flowers that are so unique and what we have now is so different than it ever was. Uh, no, I can tell you that humanity has a pattern and there are events that unfold. Maybe the players change and the events and the technology change, but the actual events and how humanity acts doesn't change that much. It just keeps repeating itself. 
and we're looking at a 40, 40 year um, difference and basically the same thing happens again. Um, so I'm gonna get right into it. I'm gonna go bring in again my welcome and my guest today, Matt Perkins. He's gonna go through. He has his wife is from Vietnam. Uh, again, he he married up. I don't good good for him for marrying her. Uh, but you're gonna have that. It's gonna be a good conversation. And as always, thank you guys so much for following, so much for doing the support. The YouTube is gonna be spent. Uh, again, there's not gonna be any YouTube. I don't have time for YouTube. Uh, and you guys always tell me uh, stop with the YouTube. We don't watch it. It's all a podcast. And you guys show that in the numbers. Everybody listens to the podcast, not the YouTube. So the YouTube is going to be reserved for like fun stuff, maybe again for the next Braun Bracket Challenge with the henchman or something. Um, but if you're looking for the episodes, they're all going to be podcasts here until the foreseeable future. You guys have told me unequivocally, uh, yeah, it's it, this is for a podcast, not for YouTube. Great message received, guys. And uh, we'll stick with podcasts. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Tomorrow Never Dies, Follow Saigon, Kabul, Matt Perkins. Let's get into it. All right, I want to welcome back Matt Perkins from Bond Cigars. This is his third time on the channel and always fantastic. And I always say whenever he comes on, I love it because I just have to sit back. I mean, I'm, I may have to share your outlines that you send to me. They are phenomenal. And uh, again, I just literally have to just sit back, let you do the talking, and uh, I basically take it off. So I cannot wait. Welcome back, Matt Perkins. You can go ahead and introduce yourself one more time. And uh, thank you for coming on. Hey, it is always a pleasure to be on here, Mr. Waldron. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with me, my name is Matt Perkins. I have an Instagram page called Bond Cigars, where I like to share my obsession with fine cigars and James Bond. And it is just always so much fun to be on Quantum of History. Like, if you haven't been on Quantum of History yet, you have to. It's totally a bucket list thing. <laughs> it's always so much fun having you. And uh, I love what you're doing with your, with your IG. And uh, always such a pleasure. So what brings us today... And you, you DM me and said, hey, I, I got this great idea for a, uh, for a podcast because it's current and it's just exactly like a Bond thing. Is You were talking about the time in Tomorrow Never Dies when Jack Wade basically does the Halo Japanese and he says, well, if the Vietnamese find them, they're going to go nuts. Um, and, and I think that there's a little bit of references. They never really do too much into Vietnam, but there's a couple references to, again, the Red Scare and stuff like that all throughout Bond. And again, Bond was very much about finding communists. That is his main objective over everything else was that he was uh, a, a tool to, to fight communism. So w this brings us to our topic today, the Saigon, the fall of Saigon, and how it parallels what's going on in Kabul right now. So how did you how did you kind of get the idea? Did you kind of get this idea just come out of watching the news, or how did it come to you? It was actually kind of a confluence of everything. So I was recently re-watching the entire Bond series with my girlfriend, who is from Vietnam. She's lived in the U.S. for five years, and we've been together for two. And just, you know, full disclosure, she is older than me. She's about nine years older than I am. So she was born shortly after the fall of Saigon. Uh, she lived in a city called Gao Lai, which is, I don't know, maybe a little bit northeast of Saigon. And Saigon is a, it's now Ho Chi Minh City. It's a huge city. But we were watching Tomorrow Never Dies. And I was also reading a novel at the time called Upcountry by Nelson DeMille. And when Bond is getting ready to do this halo jump, and he's got all this U.S. military equipment on, and Jack Wade says exactly what you said, oh man, if the Vietnamese find him, they're going to go nuts. 
Now, that doesn't really mean a whole lot to us as a modern audience in 2021. But in 1997, when that movie came out, that was a very big deal because we had just established diplomatic relations with the Socialist Republic of Vietnam two years previous in 1995. And there was still a lot of bad blood between us from the Vietnam War. Yeah, I mean, you look at the relativity, it's 20 years is the same as the time period between you know 9-11 and today versus Saigon and Tomorrow Never Dies. Exactly. And, and especially now with the, with the fall of um, Kabul and our withdrawal from Afghanistan, and also just throughout the past 20 years, I've heard our conflict in the Middle East compared frequently to the conflict in Vietnam. And I am saying conflict intentionally because we've never declared war, and war is a legal term. We've never declared war against Afghanistan, and we never declared war against Vietnam. And I thought that's why I DM'd you. I thought this would be a great opportunity to kind of re-examine the conflict in Vietnam, you know, almost 50 years. Yeah, there's a lot of the, parallels, especially when you look at how basically the executive branch has run both of these con conflicts or, or however you want to say it. It's supposed to be Congress declares war, and then, then you get your funding and all that sort of stuff. This is this is why you see like these pull-out methods and all these other things. <laughs> Giggity. Um, pull-out methods <laughs> that are going out... Uh, it's very much, it's, it's all it's all president based, and it really I think you kind of have a parallels of of how um, is it too much power just for the executive branch to have in these instances? You know, you bring up an excellent excellent point. So when well actually how about this? Let's take a step back to to when we first entered Vietnam uh, as a combat force. So we just like with any other conflict or long-term conflict, the war in Vietnam actually began before any combat soldiers set their foot down. Uh, so the U.S., we emerged victorious with the Allies in World War II. We defeated fascism. We defeated the Third Reich. We you know, dropped the bomb on Japan, and we managed to negotiate an unconditional surrender from them. The U.S. was on top of the world in mm. 1946. And, and just However, uh, before I interject, yeah. in the two very successful instances where um, again, you say someone went from fascism to to capitalism and rapidly, rapidly look at um, West Berlin and you look at mm -hmm. Japan. They recovered very quickly from World War II and became superpowers, very, not superpowers, but very influential and very affluent very quickly by adopting democratic uh, policies. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, there's actually um, an economic theory. There's a book out called An Economic Theory of Democracy, which will talk about that if you have a democratic market or if you have a democratic government, that will lead to a free market and that will ultimately strengthen whatever country adopts those two principles. So, you know, it's not light reading. I mean, it's certainly not a James Patterson thriller, but it is very insightful about how governments can um, strengthen their own economies and their own nation states. And yeah, very good call out with um, with Eastern or with West Germany as well. Mm -hmm. So once we emerged victorious from World War II, we entered what is the Cold War. And I'd like to reference this uh, scene in GoldenEye where M calls Pierce Brosnan's James Bond a relic of the Cold War. It's because he very much is. Bond was created. As, he is a product of the Cold War. Um, but we, we found a new enemy in this Cold War. And a lot of people will say it was Russia. But it really wasn't. It was communism. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, shortly after the end of World War II, especially in, in the Truman administration, they established what was called the domino theory. So post-World War II, Russia was the supreme power on the eastern side of the United, or the eastern side of the world, and communism started to spread through all those Soviet republics, and that's when they formed the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And that what was called the domino theory 
was formed was that if communism takes place and takes hold in one country, it will begin to spill over into neighboring countries, like dominoes falling on top of each other. And so it is the United States' prerogative to fight communism and defend democratic countries wherever they can. That is what led to the Korean War, was it was a police action because North Korea, backed by the communist Chinese, was trying to invade South Korea, and we wanted to defend that um, democratic government. Hmm. We, that ended in a stalemate, and then that led to Vietnam. Now, again, kind of the same thing that happened in Korea, commie, or, um, China was supporting the communist North Vietnamese, as well as Russia was supporting the communist North Vietnamese, led, uh, who was ultimately led by Ho Chi Minh. And throughout the 50s, it really began more with Eisenhower's administration, is we began sending military advisors and aid to help support the pro-American South Vietnamese government, or Republic of Vietnam. But then 1964, and this is where things really pivot, this is where things really changed. On August 2nd, 1964, the USS Maddox was conducting signal intelligence in the South China Sea. They encountered three, I believe it was four Vietnamese torpedo boats. I wouldn't even describe what happened between them as a skirmish. A couple of torpedoes were fired, some gunfire was exchanged, four Vietnamese soldiers were killed, or four Vietnamese sailors were killed, and the USS Maddox escaped virtually unscathed. I believe one bullet I believe they had one bullet hole. No sailors were harmed, certainly no casualties. And then two days later, it's alleged that the USS Maddox was under fire again from the North Vietnamese Navy. And Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, and Lyndon Johnson, who was getting ready to be reelected to his first, to his first full term in office, took that attack to Congress as a justification for commitment of military forces. And they Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, I would say, is very much like the National Defense Authorization Act today. It granted the president broad, and I can't emphasize this enough, broad unilateral power to commit combat forces to Vietnam. And that was the beginning of American combat involvement. Yeah, absolutely. The France Ferdinand of, uh, of the Vietnam War, right? Exactly. Now, the worst part about this is, and this is where I understand distrust of government. So the August 2nd incident did happen. You know, they, there was that very, very minor altercation between the USS Maddox and the North Vietnamese Navy. However, Robert McNamara later admitted, and this was also revealed in the Pentagon Papers that were released in the 1970s, there was no second attack. That was a complete fabrication. Yeah. But that's, Johnson and... I mean, it's crazy to think about that they, they even went about that, but you have to drum up support. I mean, just saying... It's hard to keep people emotional, especially, I mean, you're seeing it now, and I'm sure it was just the same way back then. How to keep people so invested? Like, yeah, like, when Pearl Harbor happens, everyone's ready. Or when 9-11 happened, there's this extreme nationalism that happens in the stream. Let's go root for America. And by the time you're talking about the 1960s, there's been a lull. Again, you're looking at almost 20 years after uh, World War. There's a fatigue. Everybody's kind of home doing their own thing. So how do you drum up anger? How do you drum up support? for a cause and these attacks and it's like oh we have to defend our country and show american power they they they've understood this for a very long time this is how you this is how you gain support of it and gain funding which is essential 
because these 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 people in, in the Congo, even though they gave him them unilateral power for decision making, the funding still has to come from Congress. So you still have to get the funding, and then those people still have to go back to their constituents and justify why their tax dollars are being spent on these things. Exactly. Exactly. And it quickly happened with, with Vietnam that we didn't have enough soldiers in our all-volunteer force. We didn't have enough soldiers to meet the commitment that would be necessary to defend the South Vietnamese and fight the North Vietnamese. So for the third time in almost 30 years, we had a peacetime draft. Now, I, I know that sounds crazy. It's like, oh, no, we were actually you know, overseas fighting. But when I, again, when I say peacetime, I mean, we weren't at war. Mm -hmm. um, President Roosevelt in the 19, I want to say it was the late 30s, conducted the first ever peacetime draft prior to World War II. And then after World War II for the Korean conflict, we did institute another draft for that. And then now here we are with Vietnam. So three times in almost as many decades, we're, we're conscripting soldiers to go fight. And it was, it quickly escalated. Yeah, I mean, you're going... I, again, you go over the things, and you go into a place that you don't understand. I mean, how do you? How well do you understand in the 1950s? I, I heard a when I was doing the Korean War uh, episode that I did for Dying mm -hmm. of the Day. The people they had in charge didn't even know how to draw uh, North Korea and South Korea. They literally just picked half of Korea and said, "There you go." <laughs> like, like, <laughs> to get a broad, deep understanding of the cultural paradigms in these places, in the deep-rooted sentiments of where the conflicts begin uh it's it i can imagine how under underused they were i mean look at the abject failures that you're seeing now i'm sure that they had even exacerbated un misunderstandings of what it was like when they go into the jungle of vietnam you know you're you're absolutely right with that and what you bring up with um with exacerbating the issues of today this is where a really good parallel can be drawn between the two so with the U.S., when we entered into Vietnam, we had two objectives. We wanted to defend the South Vietnamese government against communism, and we wanted to establish a pro-American government that would support and further our interests in the region. And that's exactly what we were, that's exactly what our goal was in Iraq and very much in Afghanistan was we wanted to disrupt the terror network that had established itself in Afghanistan. And we wanted to set up, even though it, this wasn't widely publicized, we did want to set up a pro-American government that would protect and promote our interests in that region. Hmm. And nation building is very difficult because while we want to install people that are friendly to our interests, that doesn't mean that the people actually living in the country are going to be receptive to that. No. And nation building has a very, very poor success rate. Yeah, I mean, again, it worked well in Europe. You saw as Spain, Italy, Ireland, um, and then Japan all all went. But again, you're looking at people who were ready for it. And then by the time the fall of the Berlin Wall, the the East Berlin was dying for it. They were looking how mm -hmm. the, the it was a beautiful example. I say beautiful, and, and it's kind of a a hard not you know mal not malicious but like a it is kind of beautiful to watch the difference between what happens in a capitalist nation and what happens to a communist nation as two people who are basically of the same culture had very much different outcomes in the way that they were governed and their quality of life as it goes and uh i i think in the same thing you look at what you're trying to do with bring it to vietnam or try to bring it to afghanistan you're looking at centuries i mean afghanistan people have no concept of again nationalism or any kind of concept of democracy it hasn't been there for centuries it's never been there 
at least with the Europeans in the in and there was some kind of semblance of it or they had the understanding for it. Whereas this, you, how do you change an entire nation to think like the way you want to think? The short answer is you don't. And, <laughs> exactly. and, that is the short yeah. answer. You don't. And you waste a lot exactly. of money doing it. Yeah. And, and another similarity between the Afghan population and the Vietnamese population is that they both were sick of people. And this is you know, going to be a hot word right now. They were both sick of people colonizing their country. I mean, the conflict in Afghanistan did not start in 2001 when American soldiers landed. They had been fighting as far back. I mean, I certainly know in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s with Russia trying to invade Afghanistan. These people were sick of having foreigners in their country. And Vietnam was very much the same way. For 20 years, 30, 40 years previous, the French had ruled Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And that was ultimately what you know, allowed communism to begin to flourish, was you had these communist agents coming in saying, you should be an independent country. You should govern yourselves. You don't need someone on the other side of the world telling you what to do which is very much a sentiment that I think most Americans can relate to because that's how we felt when the British ruled us as a colony. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, by the time American soldiers got there, the Vietnamese weren't fighting for communism. They were fighting for their own independence. And, and a great book to read, if anyone's really interested in understanding how that revolution fomented, is a novel called Saigon by Anthony Gray. I've read that book. It is a, it's a novel, obviously, so it takes some dramatic license, but it is a great way to understand the mindset of people back then. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it's just a very different, it's, even though there's some similarities between our mindset and theirs, you can't force people to adopt your principles just yeah. because you find value in them. Nope, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The same with, uh, I haven't, you know, I don't, I'm not as well versed in Vietnam in, in any sense of the way, but I've read a ton of books on the Afghanistan conflict. And just how far it goes back and, and how integral Pakistan is to this and how integral the, everything is and it's how interwoven in that country. And uh, we'll, you know, we've seen successes in South Korea. You've seen it in how South Korea is far ahead of North Korea. You've seen it again in Japan and stuff. But to actually just try to do it every time to a nation where you start. It's like trying to teach a basketball player how to, let's say I'm going to, hey, we're, we're going to learn basketball today. You know what we're going to do? The first lesson we're going to do, we're going to teach you how to break a full court press. And here you go, you got to do this, and here's the trap in the half court and all this other stuff. And the guy's looking at you, and he doesn't even know how to dribble yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is – Yeah. It's, it's when you're trying to put in these complex democratic systems, it, you know, it, you're looking at somewhere you didn't even start where a foundation is. So the basketball example, you got to learn how to dribble before you can beat a full court press. I mean, you're miles ahead of where we are at this point. And uh, I, I just find a lot, a lot of things, a lot of parallels with that. So we get into – we will go into um, actually how it went from the war, or the, the conflict ends, and how we get to the fall of Saigon. So let's kind of transition into that, pull again, the pull-out method as it comes. <laughs> Giggity. Giggity. <laughs> Giggity. Um, so this is where I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the end of the conflict in Vietnam compared to Afghanistan. So Vietnam as a, as a total conflict was significantly worse than what we've experienced in Afghanistan. Almost 60,000 Americans died in Vietnam in the 10 years that we committed combat soldiers. And in Afghanistan, less than 2,500 American soldiers have, have uh, paid the ultimate price, which every life lost, in my opinion, is tragic, but just the scale in Vietnam was so much worse. But it, so in 1973, the United States sat down with the North Vietnamese government and they negotiated what was called the Paris Peace Accords. It was a formal treaty between the North and the South to cease hostilities. Among the stipulations in that agreement and the 
uh, treaty was signed on January 27, 1973. The treaty was signed. Among the stipulations were complete American military withdrawal, giggity, within 60 days. I'm never going to be able to say that word again without, no. you know, chuckling. That's it. Pull-up method. Quantum of history. <laughs> and also there would be a ceasefire between the North and South Vietnamese government. So, and by the way, by the time in 1973, President Nixon had already been reelected to a second term. Americans were done with the war effort. And Nixon was also beginning to feel the heat of Watergate. So he needed a win. Peace, the peace accords were signed. The U.S. immediately began withdrawing combat soldiers. The conflict in Vietnam has come to an end for the Americans. However, because we still wanted to support the Republic of Vietnam, the southern part, we, left, we maintained an embassy there because we still recognize them as the legitimate government of Vietnam. Almost immediately, once we, once we withdrew combat soldiers, both sides, the North and the South, broke the peace agreement and began fighting with each other. However, the North gained momentum. They began to expand their territory. They began to expand their territory, and they, be, and they made a march toward Saigon. The U.S. realized that the South Vietnamese would not be able to protect our embassy, so we immediately withdrew our diplomatic personnel. Again, we had already withdrawn our combat soldiers. This was purely just a diplomatic evacuation. Now, compare that to the fall of Kabul. We had tried to negotiate a peace agreement with the Taliban. However, we have no agreement in place with them. No. So for the Taliban walking into Kabul and taking over everything, we still have combat forces on the ground there. This is significantly worse diplomatically, militarily, and politically. Kabul is significantly worse than the fall of Saigon. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this, Saigon, what happened too is that, like I talked about funding before, they stopped all the funding for the South Vietnamese army too. Congress six months before against Gerald Ford mm -hmm. had had stopped all the funding. So this was inevitable as far as North Vietnam is being backed by other funding. South Vietnam no longer has American backing, no longer has American funding. So this is a trickle at the end of the time. Saigon, uh, North Korean forces come in, or North uh, Vietnamese forces come in, and they overrun Saigon as helicopters. But it, it's not this massive... Um, complete fall of what you're seeing in Kabul. Kabul was, again, there was the last year, there was the agreement in place with Taliban, but it, had, it came with a lot of um, things that they had to honor before there would be a withdrawal. There was not a just, hey, you're going to have the government because you have to, you have to try to do something. I mean, Taliban is a, a large force and they have to have something. And, and even if you say on phase, we tried to do something, they did, they're the ones that didn't abide by the agreement that we had. And the Taliban has long known exactly what to say to the West. You say something and you do something else. And as long as you keep saying it in the media, most people are like, well, they, they said they were going to do it. And then if you just completely disregard that and do exactly whatever you want to do, and you, as, as long as you keep saying two things, talking out of two sides of your mouth, it's one thing to try to sway the, the, the public opinion. And you're looking at what happened here. This was just, this was just a... You, you, you've gone too much and uh, you're not ready and you just pull out too quickly. Correct. We, you know, and, and I'm certainly not being critical of the soldiers that have honored, that have served, you know, because God bless every single one of them. But we really did leave Afghanistan in a hurry. And, and I don't think there was any way to quote unquote win. As Joe Biden said that, you know, he is the fourth U.S. president to preside over this conflict. We had 20 years to put up a successful infrastructure and we never did. Mm -hmm. We tried. 
but we never did. And you're absolutely right. The Taliban was more than happy to wait us out. And the Taliban has grown incredibly sophisticated when it comes to their PR apparatus. They know how to present themselves. This new Taliban, I should say, knows how to present themselves to the world. Yeah. yeah. And whether it's true or not, they war is just, about, just as much about PR as it is about fighting. That's it. I mean, people, it's hard to actually get a real feel for what it's like in the trenches. You know, if, you, if you're just sitting there in the living room watching on CNN or watching on YouTube or whatever you're watching, the images can be haunting. And that's, see, Vietnam was like the first televised war. And I think that's how, that's how quickly these, the, you can't just sit here and say, oh, we're attacked, we're fighting. It's one thing to say you're fighting. It's another thing to see people dying and see your loved ones dying and watch the, the horrors on, on manifest on your TV. And the same thing with you're having now. You're having all these videos of you know the Afghans running for their life, hanging off of planes, trying to get out. You see the mass chaos that's there. That you you were like, how how are you still even keeping on going? I mean, you still haven't lost it so much that you just literally just gave it back to the Taliban. You it was a, just a police force. It was twenty five to thirty five hundred officers that were there. It's it's um it is a complete. I, I said the same thing. It didn't matter what president was going to be. It, if it was him or four from now, it was going to be the same fall. And just much like Saigon, I, I, it was going to happen no matter what. But to just leave billions of dollars of equipment, to leave all everybody out there just hanging to dry, knowing that your the fate is such a gr- such a grave fate for these people. I mean, it's almost certain death um, for the people that had helped out. And you've, you have people who led 20 years and didn't even know Taliban rule. All of a sudden, you're going to have your rude awakening coming up. And to him, to him yeah. just be like, you know, a big, hey, you know, a big giant F you to you guys. And what you said about, um, just really quick, I wanted to pivot back. What you said about Vietnam being the first televised war, and you're absolutely right. I would also say that Afghanistan is the first social media war. Ooh, that's a good, that's a good, it's a good, it's a really good uh, point. Yeah, and and also with when we left Vietnam, you know, we were able to basically recover as much equipment as we could, even though we had sixty days to withdraw. There was two years between the signing of the Paris Peace Accord and the evacuation from Saigon, so we had plenty of time to recover personnel, equipment, etc. Whereas in Kabul, as you said, you know, we're leaving hundreds of millions, billions of dollars worth of of equipment. We still have personnel. The people that I feel for most, and unfortunately, this happens with any type of armed conflict. Is I feel bad. I feel very much for the people who supported us while we were there because yeah. not all of them are going to get asylum in the U.S. We had um, they were called collaborators in Vietnam. You know, I'm sure we all heard that term throughout every conflict, but we had people who supported us in Vietnam, and we couldn't rec- we couldn't bring all of them home. So they had to face the communist forces when they arrived. Same thing in Afghanistan. We've had people who have supported us. You know. They've provided us intelligence. They've provided us shelter. Yeah. And the Taliban coming in, not all those people are going to get out. And there will be retribution. There always is. I'm not just, you yeah. know, not just for Afghanistan. So it's, it's, a, it's a very heart-wrenching conflict going on right now. Yeah, for sure. It's hard. I mean, in, even in my own career, I've had confidential informants um, where, again, I've said something, I got you, you know, you're going to have this all stuff. And then some state's attorney who doesn't understand what it's like or what they did to get there. Um, will put won't redact the name in a charging document, mm. and that person got shot, and it it weighs on you, because you're like this dude trusted me, like this dude put it in. I said one thing, I said another thing, and then somebody who has no idea what it's like to be in this kind of con- these kind of conflicts, 
did something stupid and now that person lost life and it's it's uh i'm sure that all the people that work there it's going to be traumatic for both uh, the families that lose their loved ones and for the ones that have to come back with the guilt and the burden of knowing you gave your word to somebody and then through nothing out of your control somebody came in and now people are losing their lives based on um the folly of your word yeah and it's and it is ultimately your word i mean these and i'm not and to to kind of carry on what you're saying with the collaborators that we had in Afghanistan and Vietnam, this is more than just the American government looking bad. These are individual soldiers and intelligence officers who forged these relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, it's, you're human. You, you can't help but feel emotionally connected to these people. And it's, yeah, I can, I can only imagine how, how heart-wrenching it is. One thing that I did want to point out, though, with the difference between Vietnam and Afghanistan is Gerald, as you said, Gerald Ford. So Ford was president. Uh, Nixon had already resigned due to due to pressure from the mounting impeachment. Uh, Ford was president when we evacuated Saigon, and I don't think history really appreciates how great Gerald Ford was as a president during that time. He took the hit on the evacuation from Saigon, and he had to rebuild the country and reinstill confidence in the country post Watergate. We were fighting a very unpopular war. Uh, we had just evacuated all diplomatic personnel from the failed state of the Republic of Vietnam. And Ford had to guide us through all that. And here was a guy who wasn't even elected. No. And Ford didn't even actually want to be president, believe it or not. He wanted to be Speaker of the House. He got kind of forced into being vice president. And I, I really think, um, you know, without making this too political, <laughs> I really wish we had that type of leadership right now because I, I just don't see that we do. No, I, 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 this is... Um, I mean, I, I think this is even worse than what Jimmy Carter, you know, with all the ran and all the softness and it's, uh, you have to, and then to just be so callous about it. He's very much, very much callous about the actions that he's done and the death that he's going to bring to people. And, you know, it wasn't, it, make it seem like it was this ongoing, like you said, it was, it was Vietnam. It was not Vietnam. And as far as death toll, it's not even close, not even close to comparable. It's not even like we in the, over the last 10 years that there's been this massive conflict that's been insane. And we were basically a, a base just like we have in Djibouti or we have all over Africa or we have all over the world. We have so many bases all over the world. Um, the necessity and it, the, the main thing too is just the emphasis on having them out by September 11th um, as a 20-year anniversary just as a political victory mm-hmm. or, or just some kind of political statement. It's... um. It is. It's, it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. And I'm sure people in Saigon or people that watch Saigon unfold, um, it, it just hits home if you were alive for that time. I, yeah, my, uh, my parents were alive during that time, and they said it was everyone was watching it. Yeah. That was, I mean, that, that was a true national attention. Um, I, would like to, I would like to end this on a positive note, if we may. So we, we did not have diplomatic relations with the Socialist Republic of Vietnam for 20 years almost 20 years exactly. And finally, in the, the mid to late 90s, or in the 1995, we established a liaison office. And then a couple months later, we formally established an embassy with them, and we normalized relations with them. And even now, Vietnam is actually becoming an ally, especially as China continues to grow and gain influence in that sphere. And the dispute in the um, contesting of the South China Sea we are relying on Vietnam. Vietnam was the host of the 
summit between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. the Supreme Leader of North Korea. That really symbolizes how Vietnam has changed so much in you know, 40, 50 years. So I'm, I am optimistic that with the way things have changed uh, politically and culturally with Vietnam, again, just to kind of reiterate, my girlfriend is Vietnamese. And in 1971, that would have been unthinkable. But, you know, I absolutely love her. Yeah, you bagged and, a good one. I, thank I've, you. I've, I've seen your karaoke videos. How she stays with you after those karaoke videos, I don't even know. She, I, don't know I don't know how you keep it going. I, I don't know either, man. She is way too pretty for me. I will <laughs> gladly admit that. She is way too pretty and way too smart for me. Like, I, it has to be the language barrier. Like, she just must not understand English well enough to know what a complete cool I am. Um, but it's, I'm, so I'm confident that in 20 years from now, we will be looking at Afghanistan as a new ally in the Middle East. Yeah, because... I, I think what you see with the Korea and Vietnam too, there is the added thing where the sphere of influence of China, even though they're maybe harboring resentment, of course, towards the U.S., I think they're more fearful of China because you look at how, you said Vietnam, but certainly South Korea is a great example of of how, vi- I mean, they are, they have really, they, I mean, they have... Uh, major automotive industry, technological industry. They have mm-hmm. a growing success in the, in the quality of life that's gone on there. You see, and, and then you still got uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong, how th- basically they've China has taken over Hong Kong very quietly, very sneakily, but they've got Hong Kong now, and now they're moving their sets set on Taiwan. And there was even a, a message sent out to the Taiwan people from the CCP basically saying, look what the U.S. did to Afghanistan. Uh, if you think Taiwan, the U.S. is going to save you, look what they did in Afghanistan. And that was a, an official press release from the CCP, basically saying, Taiwan, you're next. Yeah, and that is that is really going to bring international relations to a boil. Um, you know, I'll admit, foreign affairs and foreign policy is not my strongest suit, but I would I would make the argument that if China moves on Taiwan, that would trigger World War III because there are far too many vested interests in protecting China and protecting Taiwan. I would have said the same thing about Hong Kong, though. I mean, our, it's the gateway to the east, and Hong Kong was begging for help, and no one did anything about it. And now there's extradition, and they're actually able to extradite these people from Hong Kong to these Chinese prisons for political dissent. You know, you're you're absolutely right. The only reason I would disagree with you on that, though, as far as triggering a conflict, is the the transfer from the British to the Chinese government in 1997. So even though we may find it very distasteful, Hong Kong was technically part of China. Yeah. And well, so was they, Taiwan. Taiwan was actually the, Taiwan was found because of the, um, the guy who was uh, against Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong's yeah, ba- Chiang Kai Shek. Yeah, we went there, and then that's how that's how Taiwan was basically created. Yes. Um, by the way, fun trivia. My mom lived in Taiwan for three years. Oh, yeah? Why yeah, was she uh, over there? Uh, my grandfather was in the Air Force. Nice. And he was stationed in 1960, I want to say it was 1961, from like 1961 to 1963. What did he say uh, about he his stayed, time there? My mom hated it. <laughs> he, they absolutely hated it. Said it was one of the ugliest places they've ever been in the, they've ever lived. Really? Um, bear in mind, this was 1961. Yeah. So this was only a dozen years after the Chinese Civil War. Taiwan was still ruled by Chiang Kai-shek. Um, and the, 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 you know, this is maybe getting a little bit too um, mincing of words, but the reason I would say Taiwan would trigger the conflict is because Taiwan has always maintained its independence from China. They, yeah. they are the Republic of China. Like they're not. They think that the Communist Party, the Communist government, is the illegitimate government, even though the international community disagrees with that. So it would it would be interesting to see what happens if 
um, the People's Republic of the PRC does move on Taiwan. But yeah. And I mean, it, with the new it, Top Gun movie coming out, even he had to take off that flag so that it could be shown. Him. <laughs> did you see? Did you hear that part? No, I didn't. Yeah. So in the 1985, uh, his leather jacket, Tom Cruise's leather jacket, had the Taiwan flag on his jacket. To oh, really? go into the 2021 Top Gun, he had to change. Uh, he had to take off the Taiwan flag from his jacket so that the movie could be shown in, in China, or else they weren't going to let it be shown in China. Oh, and they're a huge. They're a huge movie market. Um, the the fall in Afghanistan. The the CIA back in the 70s did a report. Actually, ran a report that said if we withdrew from Vietnam, peace treaty or no, if we withdrew, withdrew from Vietnam, that would not really affect our standing on the national stage. And I would still argue that even though it didn't look good on the international stage, the U.S. really did save face for the most part. We, we negotiated a peace treaty, and then we just evacuated our personnel once we realized they were in danger. I would argue, and you know, foreign policy is a long-term game, the fall in Afghanistan and the way that we're scrambling out is going to potentially embolden our enemies. Yeah. And as you said, you know, China is... I've always had my doubts as to whether or not China would actually try to take back Taiwan, but this is just another step in that direction. And it's only going to embolden Russia as well in the region to continue to strengthen their position. So even though the U.S. is still strong, it's sometimes necessary to project that strength. Especially when China, even before Taiwan or the Taliban took over, China had already stated, we have an agreement with the Taliban. We're going to recognize them as the, as the legitimate mm-hmm. leaders before all the fiasco happened. I mean, how did it, was, it, it seemed like a foregone conclusion. And Afghanistan has a lot of minerals, has a lot of natural resources, which China does not have very many at all. Between the pipeline that's been put through from Russia and China to the natural resources they're trying to get from Afghanistan. That's all what it is. Or the Belt and Road policy that's happening in Africa. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that happens after this. And we still have three more years of this. And uh, there's a lot that can go on. And a lot of moves that can be made. Um, because it's never these incidents, these incidents are never silos. They're never one incident and they don't affect other things. They happen. They have ramifications on this global society. Uh, all the time. And this is definitely going to be one of the big ones. It, it definitely shows um, what this administration is willing to do and what they're willing to not do. Yeah. And it's, it is the next, you're absolutely right, the next three years, and I would even go so far as to say the next 15 years, it's going to be very interesting to see what the ramifications of our withdrawal on this. And also to just see the future of U.S. military conflict. Because mm-hmm. we've, had, we've had an all-volunteer fighting force for the last 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. Whereas with Vietnam, we had the draft. So, you know, you served your one year. That was your tour of duty. But with the all-volunteer force, I mean, we have we have soldiers on their third and fourth tours, yeah. sometimes even fifth and sixth. And so even though the scope of fighting is significantly smaller in regards to personnel, the, the cost, the human cost, is so much higher because you just you can't expect someone to be under that type of pressure and stress for prolonged periods of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know how they're going to handle that going forward because there's been talks of reinstituting a draft in the future for conflict. But, I mean, let's face it, man, last time they did that, it did not. It was Vietnam, and it, it, it did not go well. No, no. So, yeah, it, it will be it'll be interesting to see for sure. Well, Matt, as always, it has been such a pleasure, and uh, you make my job so much easier because uh, n- just let you talk and call it a day. 
your flat trust me flattery will get you everywhere with me but you know donnie it's it's always great to come on your show i absolutely love your podcast and you know i am only great because of my proximity to your great <laughs> all right enough of being a sycophant over here let's do it <laughs> all right man hey, i appreciate it always i love having you on this is a great and i'm sure many many more times uh, so again, if you're not following him, he's Bond Cigars, he's Matt Perkins, uh, really good dude, and uh, definitely married up. So <laughs> <laughs> thank with you the, for that. I, with that karaoke yeah. voice, uh, you know, good luck keeping it. <laughs> Gold finger. <laughs> uh, all right, my man. Till next time. All right, bro. Bye. <laughs>